You're watching Deprogrammed. This is the New Culture Forum's latest show, devoted to fighting back against the forces of ideological conformity, particularly among the young. My name is Harrison Pitt. I'm a senior editor at the European Conservative, and I'm delighted to be joined today, as ever, by Evan Riggs, who is a freelance journalist and a man who will need no introduction, the highly distinguished historian David Starkey. Now, um, I'm, I'm interested at the moment, David, there appears to be a, a cross-party consensus that diversity built Britain. You have Rishi Sunak holding up the new 50p coin with bearing that inscription, and of course you have the uh, reliably dim Sadiq Khan making this point, basically saying to Britons that you know, immigrants built their capital city. Is this true, to begin with? <laughs> and if it's not true, why does there seem to be so much intellectual and mental capital involved in convincing us that it is true? Well, of course, it's, as always, history being bent to fit the present. I and mean, that's really what it is. As you know, uh, the, li the latest figures for immigration under a government led by Rishi Sunak are an incredible 600,000 in one year. Mm. That's a city the size of Manchester, a city bigger than Liverpool in one year. So this has got to be justified. That's one part of the story, one part of the reason for this. The other thing is, of course, the very understandable reason to make immigrants of all shapes, sizes, religions, colours somehow feel that they belong. And I think the latter has become very dangerous because what it says is you can't, if you are black or if you are Indian or if you're Pakistani, you cannot somehow identify with this country unless you can produce evidence that there were large numbers of people who looked exactly like you in historic periods before. And of course, it just isn't true. It really isn't true. And there's a very different kind of approach to immigration. Uh, you, 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 you've given us two definitions of different immigrant attitudes. Could, could you give, any, give us an example of both types, please? Uh, well, the, 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 the really important one, we've, we've chatted about the one that says you've got to have people in the history of the country that look exactly like you yes. or have exactly the same religion. The other one, of course, is uh, one of the most, where well, I'm in the middle of a podcast, which of course I'm enjoying greatly now. The podcast that I, I've actually uh, en, en, enjoyed most, which again, too, is yes. trigonometry mm. uh, with the wonderful Constantine Kissin and, dare I say, sidekick. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, that, that idea that you're one of three and if you remember Constantine who is of course Russian uh, mm -hmm. did this extraordinary performance at the Oxford Union in which he talked about the West as his ideal as the place that liberated him that he wants to be the he, he came up with a brutal line that the only thing that we have to say about slavery is that every other country had it and Britain abolished it mm. and that is that's that very different sort of attitude that that the the the, 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 the I think dare one say the good immigrant mm. uh, wants to be part of this country mm. uh, recognizes again dare one say that Britain is an extremely good place to live sure. I mean why do 600,000 people want to live here the answer is not because they've come to be oppressed it's not become mm. because they've come to feel culturally yes. alienated it's not because we are systematically racist yes. or they will be systematically disadvantaged it's they think they will do much better here than anywhere else and I think this is what this is the real narrative 
that we should be pushing. Now, again, remember, you can play the game of immigration in very different ways. Um, the, the famous remark that sort of everybody latches onto is Daniel Defoe at the beginning of the 18th century, who refers to us as a bastard nation. Mm. And he talks about the fact that, you know, we are Roman, we are Anglo-Saxon, we are Danish, we are Norman, we are Huguenot. Now, all of that is true, but A, it was a long time ago, B, in more recent history, the numbers were absolutely tiny. And C, and this is the really important thing, from that extraordinary fusion of Anglo-Saxon and French speaking, the, uh, the, the fusion, fusion of two dramatically different cultures between the Norman conquest and the end of the 14th century with Chaucer, you forge a remarkably homogenous culture. And it's that homogenous culture which, dare I say it, spawns freedom. Remember, England, uh, between the 16th century and the end of the 17th, simply invents modernity. Everything that we regard as a good thing fundamentally starts here. Now, if that's not enough for any, any immigrant who wants to better themselves, mm. any immigrant um, who wants to enjoy freedom, wants to enjoy prosperity, wants to enjoy freedom of speech, wants to enjoy political rights, if they can't find something to be attractive in that, then mm. why here? <laughs> um, I would have to imagine it's the fact that people think that they can actually in this country mold it a bit to become more like they're the country that they've left whereas other places even if they might have slightly less economic prosperity or slightly less secure are going to be less malleable why do you think people have been able to infiltrate you know not only the news but also you know the media i mean we even see so many netflix shows now where they've basically done a full-scale rewriting of english past it is an extraordinary mystery, isn't it? I mean, all one can say is that the key element of a, civil, of, 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 of a thriving civilization, like a thriving human being, is finally confidence. That yeah. what differentiates a successful country from an unsuccessful country is finally a genuine confidence in itself. So, so why did Britain and, lose its confidence? What, what, it's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, it could, I mean, remember, this is not the first time civilizations have lost confidence. Rome lost confidence. And the, one of the greatest minds, one of the great historical minds of all time, Gibbon, uh, Edward Gibbon, devoted a lifetime to trying to analyze why Rome fell. I mean, can we understand the, uh, traditionally, you know, because, medievalists and whatever get very excited about the Middle Ages, we do forget some absolutely simple straightforward facts. It takes until the end of the 18th century for standards of civility, culture, the economy, life expectancy to recover from what they had been before 400. There genuinely are mm. dark ages. Urban life genuinely vanishes. There is um, a, 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 an absolute destruction of culture. 
that happened. Now, Gibbon's answer uh, is one that's deliberately naughty, because it's a bit like me, I suppose, really. Gibbon is denounced by the great Dr. Johnson, who's another extraordinary figure of this extraordinary world of late 18th century yes. London. Mm -hmm. And Johnson describes him as the infidel historian. Mm -hmm. Gibbon is profoundly hostile to Christianity. And the central thing that he puts in the middle of his narrative of the fall of Rome is Christianity. Mm. That, in other words, Rome underwent a religious invasion. Uh, we know we know that that uh, uh, the, the, the Roman attitude to religion is a very interesting one. It's there is on the one hand the formal civic religion of the worship of the emperor. Remember, sure. the emperor is divine. Yeah. The emperor becomes divine, and to refuse to offer a sacrifice to him uh, is, is, is treason. I mean, that's essentially why Christians are persecuted, because they will not worship an earthly god. It's a, it's, it's so, similar, a similar reason why John Locke thought that Catholics wouldn't make good citizens, because they would have two rival sovereigns. They would have two mm. rival sovereigns. Yes. Uh, but of course, that, that, was, that was different in, in that in the, uh, even Roman Catholics didn't think the Pope was God. No, <laughs> indeed. But, but I mean, that, that was a that was a, a religio-secular, well, I suppose actually the Roman one was a religio-secular uh, 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 dispute. But what, 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 what uh, Gibbon is essentially saying is that Rome fell because of a crisis of confidence in itself. What had happened was uh, Rome had been, been interpenetrated by a multitude of religions. He, uh, and uh, again, Gibbon, because he's a, he's, we were talking about neat phrases, Gibbon is a wonderful phrase maker. And he describes the Roman attitude to religion as follows, that in Rome, the people thought that all religions were equally mm -hmm. true, mm -hmm. the philosophers thought they were all equally false, and the politicians thought they were all equally useful. I pointed out this seems to be the attitude of the, the king, as you as demonstrated yes. at the coronation, with the parade of mutually contradictory religions. Mm. And it was even better in Scotland when they included humanists as well, <laughs> who, at a service in front of a king, said, "We all believe in human equality." And the king solemnly <laughs> said, "Yes." <laughs> I mean, the, the, the culmination of the absolute nonsense. But what goes on with that is the, uh, the interpenetration of that Roman sense of civic religion with mystery religion. Mm. Mithraism sure. and whatever and Christianity is one of these and it is profoundly subversive to Roman values and Nietzsche calls Christianity a religion of slaves and, and again this is also something very interesting historians rather good historian amateur but a good one Tom Holland uh, refers constantly argues that Christianity is the foundation of the liberal politics of the West I think this is manifest nonsense Christianity was totally happy with absolute monarchy and indeed, it thrives in the Roman Empire via absolute monarchy, via the acceptance of Christianity by Constantine, by the emperor, or in Russia with the Tsars, etc., etc., etc. But what, what, what I think is much more important is to look at the actual chronology. That's to say, the fall of Rome in 410, the first barbarian invasion, the reign of Honorius, which is the moment at which the Roman legions finally quit Britain. And this triggers one of the great works of Western civilization, but also, if you like, the work that more than anything else marks the end of the ancient world, the classical world. City of God. St. Augustine's City of God. And what the City of God is about, Augustine is trying to say the fact that the that Rome, contemporaries say that the reason Rome fell is that we stopped sacrificing to the gods of the capital. 
We've, got, we've stopped sacrificing to victory. We've stopped sacrificing to the god of war. We've then become victims. And St. Augustine, A, denied that and said these are false gods and stupid gods. But he also said Rome was never really worth defending. He says that the values of Rome were false values. And indeed, that there can be no absolute moral value in the earthly state. Only the heavenly city, the city of God, is a real city, has real justice, has real, um, has real truth, has real validity. In other words, in one sense, he accepts the argument. He accepts the argument. And I, th I think mm. that between the two of them, Gibbon and St. Augustine, get to the truth. This is a very long-winded way of saying, I think we're undergoing <laughs> a new religious reformation. I think, I think that we're under or revolution. I think that woke and everything we associate with it is probably, it's either a new religion or it's a Christian heresy. Mm. Uh, and it, remember, it, it originally, although the actual language of woke largely comes from France, it's largely continental Europe, it's a bizarre mixture of German idealism on the one hand and, and French, you know, uh, sexo-speculation, sociology mm. and whatever on the other. Uh, my, we're talking about quips, as I always say, all bad ideas are French. French. Uh, but it's refracted through the America's torment about slavery and a completely different history and, 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 and the treatment of black people. Uh, uh, it's refracted through... Different history from us, but not necessarily a different history from the rest of the world or even indeed much of South America and South America. Oh, absolutely. America, yes. I mean, remember, Brazil is much worse. Exactly, much I mean, worse. Um, the, 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 port, the Portuguese export of slaves uh, to Brazil dwarfs that. I mean, 300, mm. about 300,000, yes. uh, the Atlantic trade sends about 300,000 slaves exactly. to, to, North America, to the North of 13 colonies. Five million to Brazil, yes. um, and of course, you know, again, this whole this whole absurd language of slavery uh, being a genocide. How can a genocide then lead to the multiplication from three hundred thousand to the whatever tens of millions yes. are, are, are in America at the, uh, in the United States um, at, at the at the moment? So that that so it's it's this refraction uh, of the continental idealism. I mean, it's this is my great quarrel. Um, I mean, like everybody else, I profoundly respect Roger Scruton, <laughs> but it seems to me that he introduced, reintroduced in, into English conservative thought this element of Hegelian, uh, of, of German, uh, of German idealism, which I just think is profoundly dangerous. We are an ultra uh, in England and English conservatism is ultra, ultra uh, empirical. It is totally ground-rooted, it is totally ground-specific. And of course, again, the world of woke is one that denies the existence of demonstrable truth. Um, uh, or rather, it claims to have truth by revelation. Um, it, if you actually look at what's happened to our discourse now, it's become a kind of parody of religion. Twitter, with the limited number of characters you can use, looks just like a verse in the Bible. Words, mm -hmm. Psalms, w yes. so all the Psalms, you know, can just practically see them numbered. Unlettered um, Psalms. Um, um, uh, and the, uh, again, the way in which each word is parsed to find a profound meaning in it. This is not how language works. Language, certainly if you are an empiricist like me, language depends on context. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this, you know, Twitter storms are invariably about tearing, do I not know, <laughs> invariably about tearing a phrase out of context. Mm. Um, uh, again, the idea of words uh, carrying so much meaning that, that you know, an individual effectively can be burned at the stake. That's sure. cancellation. Um, which again I know from personal experience. This is a religious attitude to language. It's not a like. It's not a rational lang- attitude to language. It's not a lang- uh, attitude to language which encourages debate. Remember, again, going back to the world of, of Greece and Rome. Um, however much they all tended to become autocracies of one sort or another, still the basic culture of Greece and then more more specifically developed in Rome was a culture of debate of rhetoric of what Mm. we're doing now of language being used to persuade by fair means and foul within the political process and and it's exactly that which is now under attack as it was under attack by the Christian church Um, that that once you establish the, the notion that truth is a subject of creedal formation which cannot be challenged once you establish the notion of magisterium that there is an absolute religious authority which determines the truth there is no such thing as truth it, it, it merely it merely becomes a fetish um, uh, and uh, so I, I think that uh, it's so easy to think of us as being a deeply irreligious society which in many ways we are in terms of formal attitudes to God but in every other way it seems to me there's been this as I said extraordinary religious revival I and mean, it's not just in the things we're talking about things like Pride and you know Women's Day and this sort they've of thing. They've taken on a, a, a liturgical character. They've, they've taken on a liturgical character. They've even got a place in the calendar. Mm. We're all supposed to celebrate. Mm. The, the, the and what's going on now is just stop oil, just stop oil. It's like a religious possession. They should they'll, soon they'll be flagellating mm. themselves. I think they've already started. Now, <laughs> do you think that this uh, religious? character to to the language that we're trying to work out online now. Do you think this is indicative of kind of uh, entering the the fall of civilization? Uh, Much like the Romans, when they started arguing about religion, they they fell into their fall. Homo usion and homo usion, to to, to take uh, uh, um, Gibbon's wicked wicked explanation of the the dreadful riots in in the second room in Constantinople. That is a possibility. Now, I am not a prophet. (laughs) <laughs> and there's, I'm a historian, and there's nothing worse than uh, even very great historians like Neil Ferguson with unfortunate uh, tendencies you don't, towards you don't, be, you don't believe in applied history mm. then? Uh, I that, do. That's, that's, but that's I Ferguson's favourite be It needs to be done. So, right, let so me I'll start. Answer, answer Evan's question. No, 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 it's a really, it's really, okay. it's a really good point. Um, um, I, I think that, the, um, that all political questions need thinking about in a historical context (coughs) as one of the ways of thinking about them. Uh, You see, I believe that there are different modes of thought uh, and that one of the catastrophes that we've got ourselves into now is um, not simply woke, it is the notion of the expert determining public policy. Well, this does not mean I'm against expertise, I'm one myself which is why we're talking about history. But the historical component can only be part of the argument. Yes. Um, 
Uh, and th that is why I, you know, why I reject any form of historical determinism or anything of that kind of thing. But equally, the, we, we now see um, the disaster of a public policy which is driven by single issues. It came to a head with COVID. COVID again, was, it wasn't a rational response, it was a quasi-religious one. Um, we, 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 we treated, the, the, the virus suddenly became like the devil. Um, and quite seriously, mm -hmm. it was that sort of absurd language. Mm. We had kind of purification. Do you remember? We had purification rituals, yes. hand washing. We had which baptisms. Indeed. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and but but we had purification rituals. Mm. The, um, I, remember, uh, I remember my friend Rod Riddle, who once, for once didn't display his usual good sense and scepticism, yes, describing that he got trapped hands yeah. from washing. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is, which is yes. so did he do it on his knees? Was he wearing sack? Was he wearing sackcloth? Whatever. But, but do you can see that if you let public policy be determined by a single issue committee uh, like SAGE, the, the scientific committee, that at a single remit, which was to stop, if possible, a single death from COVID, you destroy the economy, yeah. you destroy education, you turn the National Health Service into a national COVID sickness service, mm. and you, you go mad. And uh, the, the, we see now the disaster of letting monetary policy committee be determined by the Bank of England. Yes. It's a single issue. Yes. The catastrophe of watching again we can talk about the, the other great religion which is nature worship Gaia worship which is the oldest and most primitive form of religion uh, with you know people like like David Attenborough as a kind of new St Simon Stylites if I could put him on top of a column and keep him there I would uh, and and the ridiculous Greta Thunberg you know like some yeah. child saint yes. um, uh, she seems to me to merit the fate of Joan of Arc except <laughs> it would damage the environment I can imagine CO2 <laughs> <Zero to laughs> emissions <laughs> too, ma too, ma too many emissions. There, there, there must be a more ecological, ecologically sound Compo way of dealing com compost, with it. Perhaps. And, and maybe, yeah. a bit that, uh, well, then you normally kill them first. <laughs> yes, it, you know, we must stop being so naughty. But, 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 but perhaps, we. we. Uh, but, <laughs> I am, as always, a, I'm doing a full staff. I'm, yeah. I'm leading, le leading youth astray. But you're seeing the point. All these things are quasi-religious. Well, they're more than quasi-religious. Yes. They are actually, they are actually forms of, of misplaced religion. Um, uh, and again, this weird business that we want to bring back nature as though man is not part of nature, mm -hmm. as though we are not in fact what the Bible mm. tells us. We are the masterwork of mm. nature. Uh, and this, again, it's this extraordinary sense of um, the moment that humankind is the most powerful it's ever been. We're written the, out of the script all of a sudden. But they're trying to write ourselves out of the script. Mm. I mean, the future historians, if indeed there is any literacy, any documentation, and anybody is capable of writing about it, are going to have a field day with the psychoses of the present. Yes. I, I was taking it back a little bit because I was very interested in, in, in the point you made about two types of immigrants. And I wonder if, in a certain sense, and I know you were half joking, but the immigrant we, we, we might call the good immigrant, the one who's enthusiastic about being here, looks at the place, thinks how lucky I am to be here, and, you know, and feels an instinctive loyalty to the society without necessarily having any ancestry here. I wonder if that immigrant is in, in many ways the exception rather than the rule. And I think this is true for of, of all people. Ancestry is naturally very important. I mean, and, and it has an emotional impact on our lives. It depends what you mean by ancestry. I give it, can I give an example? I'll give an example, and it's one I've used before on the show, but I, I want to know what you, what you make of it. You know, when you and I, and Evan as well, being a Canadian, when, go to the Cenotaph, you know, 
we are moved by that as human beings, but we're also moved by th that because we, ha we have an ancestral stake in what that symbol memorializes. Whereas if we were to go to some, um, you know, memorial for the, for, the, for the Chinese who suffered in the, in the rape of Nanking, again, of course, as human beings, we'd be moved by that. But we're not going to be half as moved as Chinese people will, simply by virtue of the fact, not, be not because there's any kind of racial essentialism going on, but because we have an ancestral connection to the cenotaph in a way that we wouldn't have to that hypothetical See, memorial. A, I have a remarkably ambiguous connection cenotaph. I come from generations of Quakers okay. who were of course profoundly opposed to war yes. and my father was tormented by the fact that he was torn between his desire, he, I mean he was too old to fight but he was um, because he was a machine tool worker uh, the factory that he uh, that he was working in was turned over to the manufacture of munitions and he wanted desperately to be a conscientious objector but he had been unemployed in terrible poverty um, three years on in three years in the early 1930s which is not pretty walking twice to London in search of work uh, having to delay his marriage for seven years seven years you know biblical length of time and f and he was torn on these things and it, it he was a tormented man for much of my childhood um, so I've got a, I have a complex attitude to that now I, re I rejected the Quakerism I rejected the pacifism and whatever but I'm still aware of that corner of my mind that gives me a, an intense ambiguity. I'm also aware that, and I know a lot about my ancestry right back, to, I mean not terribly far, but to the 18th yeah. century, that all of my ancestors were at the bottom of the pile. Uh, and that again produces a different sense. Um, uh, now that doesn't, now there are two ways that you can react to that. One is a sort of bitter chippiness Yes. And the other is mine, which is we have always been a society, Britain has always been, England, yes. supremely England, is a society open to talent. Going back to the Middle Ages, I mean, you think of the origins of most of the great leaders of the English church, they're not nobles. Mm. They are people usually of modest middling background. By the time you got to my own period of history, the 16th century, look at the origins of the Wolves here, of the Cromwell, yeah. uh, or indeed of the Sicils. Um, uh, they, they rise by talent and what we then do, uh, it's one of the reasons we are so staggeringly well governed in the 16th century, you then create a general machinery for the recruitment of talent, which is called Oxbridge, and, and, and both what become the public schools and the grammar schools, and you also have again uniquely in Europe you have a completely different definition of aristocracy and gentry which isn't simply it's this it's this wonderfully ambiguous point it's two things it is partly ancestry so William Sissel I mean, it's, I, mean you know, I, I, I know the I know the current Marcus of Salisbury yeah. uh, reasonably well and we giggle happily at William Sissel's desperate agonies to prove that he really was of distinguished descent. You know, <laughs> Sissel sort of labours to prove that he comes from one of the Roman tribes of Sicilia and all that. Complete rubbish of course uh, and vast expense spent on fake genealogies and coats sure, of arms sure. or whatever. So there's, on the, so there's, the, 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 there's that de desperate desire. So there's this double attitude to ancestry. Yes there is genuine sense of ancestry, the great sense of noble lineage, mm. the thing that the king 
stupidly rejected when he excluded the hereditary peerage from the coronation. I think an, an extraordinarily foolish and profoundly unhistorical, uh, a, a, a merely destructive thing to do. Um, uh, uh, um, so there's that on the one there's on the one hand. Gentility, um, aristocracy is indeed a succession of generations which is reinforced by primogeniture, uh, which is reinforced by strict settlement, which enables you to have mm. the magnificent country houses, estates, and also a highly sophisticated governing class. But it's also about behaviour. Mm. And the, 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 the phrase of Thomas Smith, who by the way is writing specifically in response to St. Augustine and is also writing specifically in response to, uh, to Thomas More. Remember Thomas More's Utopia is an early 16th century version of the City of God. It's essentially about the rejection of England as a moral society. Um, and Thomas Smith in his De Republic of the English Republic, although it's a crown republic, uh, in his De Republica Anglorum, what Smith is saying is that we are we are a society with moral validity. But he also gives this wonderful definition of an English gentleman, and in we and he uses the phrase "we make gentlemen good cheap in England." Mm. That that they are that you know they are newly minted. That to be a gentleman in England, it is enough to have a, easy. A, a, have a degree yeah. from one of the universities to. Again, listen to the point, live without manual labour mm. and maintain the port and state of a gentleman. It's behavioural. See, mm. it's a bit like my good immigrant. Um, so do you see what I mean? I see exactly what you mean. And I think that this, that, 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 that and again, you know, I'm gay, so in, in all sorts of ways, and I, I mean, un, I was a completely unashamed campaigner for gay rights, right? You know, Back, way back when Ian McKellen was busy in the closet. These were all Johnny come lately. They come along the moment it's safe yes. and the moment they can make yes. sure their knighthoods go along yes. uh, 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 along with their comings out. Um, and I have a degree of contempt. Um, but but the, 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 I was always profoundly aware as, as a gay man that to an extent I'm outside the family. Um, and, and that sense of family lineage and whatever. Um, so again, all of these complicating layerings, but for me, the, there's that broader sense of belonging, which is fundamentally cultural, historically rooted. Yes. Um, um, and it, it, that seems to me to be a genuine, genuine unifier. Whereas of course, the attempt at pretending that there were large numbers of people of different hues and different religions is a false story mm. and you're encouraging people to believe false things and I'm sorry I really am old-fashioned I believe there's a thing called truth I know it's I know it's a, it's an awkward thing and 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 it's terribly <laughs> it's inconvenient it's, terri <laughs> it's in terribly inconvenient if you're convinced you're a woman and you're a man you know uh, but I do think it's truth hmm. if, if I may Dr. Starkey I mean it seems to me that you are not a proponent of what we might call Whig history, that the, the arc of justice or the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, right? But more a, you're more of a, a cyclical historian. There are rises and falls mm. to these civilizations, to these movements, to these religions. Do you worry that you know, some of the, the aspects of, of the trans movement or some of the sort of gender hysteria that we've seen erupt over the last decade might actually contribute to a kind of reversal of the rights that gay yeah. people have uh, you know, fought very long and hard to get and are now actually being threatened. I think 
Perhaps for women particularly. For women, yes. For women particularly. Um, yes, of course. Uh, uh, but of course, you see, I think it's, it's, again, it's the fundamental problem. And again, it's something we need to understand. Liberalism, and this again is a point that's understood by, by, I don't, right, let me start again. It's conventional to assume that conservatism is merely a reaction to the French Revolution uh, and that it's a form of reactive thought. I don't believe that's true. I think English conservatism is the authentic strand of English culture. Uh, it goes right back to a figure like John Fortescue in the 15th century, who was, and again, the interesting notion of freedom and prosperity as con contrasted with, with French absolutism and the poverty of the people and, and the obscene wealth of the monarchy and the governing class that's all there I mean how can you not be a conservative country when you reverse a revolution remember the seven we did the most extraordinary thing of any country that without external intervention we deliberately reverse a revolution we rolled the clock back 11 years uh, thoroughly um, in 1660. Uh, yeah. uh, is that what you're talking about? I'm talking about I'm talking about, well, it's a complex process. It's 1660 to 1689. Yes. But you deliberately undo a revolution. You create a different political settlement, but it's one that's firmly rooted uh, in a past and whatever. So, so there's that, that very, very, very long tradition. But if, if we go back to Burke then, Burke, I think, is really reasserting. He's, he's not inventing this is con Convenient, uh, conventionally said, he is reasserting a the continuity of that culture, b the fact that English freedoms are historically rooted, i.e., go back a very, very long way. Um, uh, but also, um, he is pointing out what the essential problem with the French Revolution is. The essential problem with the French Revolution and all liberalism is that it starts with the abstract rather than the concrete that it starts with the universal rather than the particular. And I'm afraid the only possible outcome of it, and this is a terrible thing to say, liberalism naturally leads to tyranny and to destruction. It seems to me there is no accident, what, and Burke says this perfectly clearly, there is no accident about the outcome of the French Revolution. Remember what's so astonishing about the reflections is written right at the beginning, it predicts everything. It predicts the it was, terror. It was published in November, November 1790. Exactly. And, and, and the, ter the terror comes in later. Yeah. Well, it's not only that. He, he predicts Napoleon. He predicts he, a military, a military dictatorship. dictatorship yeah. Military dictatorship. He, he, he predicts social disintegration. And, uh, and he does it all on, if you like, I mean, arguing against principles. He does it all on first principles. He says that if you begin with rootless reason, yes. this is what inevitably happens. And Again, I found, I mean, I'm very interested in your question. Um, if I look at my younger self, if I look at the self that first, I suppose, became quite famous in the 1990s, I was, I was a thoroughgoing libertarian. Mm. Um, and I, uh, I would have, um, I used to say things like you know, that, that I was torn politically because Margaret Thatcher believed in economic liberalism and the left believed in, in social liberalism. And what I wanted was the two together. And then I suppose, as things began to change and the ground shifted and gave way beneath your feet, um, I became aware that that was foolish and shallow. Very understandable, and particularly you know, if one- In your context. Come, yeah. In my context, my sort of background, my, my, my kind of sexual experience, you know, um, I've been moved on by the police. I've had some thug of a police constable 
uh, on Hampstead Heath. We won't. I notice you. I notice when you said constable, you you emphasized the first syllable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, uh, (laughs) 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 Naughty boy. (laughs) Uh, uh, All of all of that. Um, uh, But I became aware that this wasn't satisfactory. So I'd been on a kind of voyage Hmm. from libertarianism to a much more grounded understanding of conservatism. And of the freedoms which you valued as a libertarian. Uh, are in fact rooted in conservatism. Exactly. You see, this is the paradox, and this is where, this is where the whole uh, wake teaching of history gets it wrong. There was this terrible exhibition at the British Library, fronted by Linda Colley on Magna Carta, that presents this, this irresistible movement towards freedom. Actually, if there's no irresistible movement towards freedom, the essential principles are there pretty much from the beginning. What you see is a broadening. Mm. Um, and what is, again, you know, anybody looking at British hi- British and particularly English history up to the 20th century is struck by one thing. Yes, there are radical movements course there are. Uh, uh, there are the Chartists, there are the, the, the struggles for the representation of, of the working man. Uh, many of my ancestors have been involved in all of these. Um, uh, uh, votes for women and whatever. But what they're all wanting to do isn't tear the structure down. They're wanting to become part of it. Mm. And what is what moreover is extraordinary is that the English upper class had the wisdom to do it. I mean, yes, there are struggles. You know, the, 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 the extraordinary uh, tearing itself apart, the tearing of the upper classes and the Tory party in particular apart in the 1830s. Um, uh, again, the, the renewed struggles of the late 19th century, the, the uh, I mean, the, the, all, all yes. the tensions over the, ref- particularly the first reform. Particularly act. when you compare it to the continent as well. I mean, in, in 1848, you know, the continent was, was erupted in the spring times of peoples, whereas Britain just had th- three not reasonably quiet reform acts throughout that century. There was upheaval. But it was all dealt with within the constitutional exactly. process. Exactly. Um, and dare one say it, I mean, uh, a, diff- degree diff- of, a degree of riot formed mm. part of the constitutional yes, and process. Yes, and, 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 and different parties were involved in it as well. Different so par- you had different Earl, Grey, so. Earl Grey, then Disraeli, and then... Uh, I mean, Disraeli, Disraeli is the one who, again, because he was a gambler, um, actually takes the biggest gamble of the lot, which everybody realised, uh, which is in 1860 to give the vote to the ordinary working man. That what 1832 does is to produce the kind of electorate which Emily Maitlis would be happy with, <laughs> uh, uh, an upper-class educated electorate that leads yes. to a permanent liberal majority. Mm. Exactly the sort of thing uh, that you know enables Hugh Edwards to flourish um, in, 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 in all his wonderful variety. Um, and uh, uh, Whereas it's Disraeli who take, Disraeli takes the Boris Johnson gamble. He takes the gamble that the, and I think it's the right gamble, that the, 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 the British working man was, was patriotic, uh, was, uh, dare I say it, also jingoistic, and of course he rides that and rides it with spectacular success. Mm. And it's also Disraeli who is absolutely clear, like, exactly like Burke, that liberalism is the enemy. And, but he does it in a very interesting way. He says, again, you know, Disraeli on conservatism is fascinating. He says, we are an, he says Britain is a naturally progressive country. Of course it is. Mm. He understood that. You know, the Victorian age is the most gigantic, I think in many ways, much bigger age of change than yes. our own. Uh, but what he says is there are two different ways of changing. This is the thing that we should all be t- 
putting into mind. There's a way of changing which is you deliberately do it according to universal principles. That's the liberal way. Mm. The, on the other hand, there is the conservative way in which you build organically on what is there mm. and adapt that to circumstance. And what is fascinating is looking back at Blair and New Labour and the utter catastrophes of, of New Labour's constitutional reforms, they were all grounded on uh, liberal universalism. The notion that we had to abolish the office of Lord Chancellor uh, because it defied the separation of powers. A, the separation of powers is a piece of inanity, French of course, uh, Montesquieu, based on a complete misunderstanding of the English constitution. He lived in England for a uh, couple of years, he spoke no English whatever, uh, he moved in a circle uh, of entirely uh, French-speaking radicals, people, people like Bolingbroke and whatever, and he gets his ideas, totally false ideas, of the English constitution from Bolingbroke, uh, uh, whatever it is. Patriot King or whatever. The idea um, of Patriot King. The idea of a Patriot King. Uh, he, he gets it from that, which is an absurd parody uh, of the English Constitution. How can you have a separation of powers when the English Constitution depends on the executive sitting in the representative assembly in Parliament and having a working majority in it? Mm. This is why the English Parliament survives. Remember, again, the, the progressive narrative sees Parliament as a development. It isn't. Parliament, Parliament exists essentially in its modern form by the end of the reign of Edward I. Right? Um, the, 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 what is peculiar about the English Parliament isn't that it is some sort of great novel development of liberalism, it's that this strange thing survives at all. And it only survives partly by accident, but also because first in the Middle Ages, and then in the uh, 18th century, Parliament was useful. Mm. The reason that Edward I, who had been the great opponent of Simon de Montfort, the reason that Edward I accepts Parliament is it's the best way of getting money out of people. Um, uh, anyway, they discover that this is extraordinary. English, I mean, this is the origins of English politeness, mm. that it's much more sensible to ask people nicely before you tax them, rather than just to go in like the French with a pitchfork and try to steal their goods, you know, which is essentially what the French absolutely monarchy did. So it's this very, very different approach. And again, in the, from the 18th century onwards, of course, it's precisely the deal between Crown and Parliament that leads to the gigantic explosion of English power, because you come up with a new way of managing Parliament and indeed managing the King in this strange office of Prime Minister. Mm. The office of Prime Minister manages Parliament on behalf of the King, but it also manages the King on behalf of Parliament. That's its, this extraordinary median job, because remember, all European countries have uh, had, had various forms of representative assembly they're abolished because they just get in the way of good government. They behave like the French uh, National Assembly did for most of its time, just absurd. Um, and, and they got rid of. The English Parliament survives because it's functionally useful. And the period of the great conflict in Parliament, the late 16th and the early 17th century, is when Parliament ceases to be useful. And instead you just get the clash. 
So, you're, so you're talking just after the the, the 1688 um, revolution, yeah? Into in Queen Anne. Uh, parli parliament. What happens is that 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 after 1689, um, there is a period of intense party strife, of course, as we all know, which which really culminates um, in the uh, in the last time that you use impeachment against a fallen minister with the Earl of Oxford uh, uh, after uh, he had he had brought about peace with France, the treaties with Utrecht. Uh, uh, the treaties of Utrecht, and the, uh, then the, the complete overthrow of that by the Hanoverian uh, uh, accession. But what you then do in the early 18th century, the office of parliament, in other words, 1720s with Walpole, you develop this new method of parliamentary management, which is what the office of prime minister is. And you know, I've just walked through the area that bases that 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 that, that is the physical testimony to this. Mm. The old royal palace of Whitehall burns out in the 1690s. And then what you see developing in the 1720s, 30s and 40s are these new instruments of government which, as it were, express the power of the Prime Minister. And so you see the building of the Treasury, you see the, bu you see the building of you see Downing Street given to Walpole in 1737, you see horse guards, you see the Admiralty. And all of these are uh, the emanations of the new 18th century state, which is this new thing called a working, functioning parliamentary monarchy, which was what was so disastrously missing in the coronation um, when the king decided arbitrarily not to have members of parliament there. Yes, mm. yes. To bring things back to the modern day here, we had uh, Peter Hitchens in, your, in that oh same yes. chair uh, last week, and I asked him, you know, what hope did he have for, for the future of he said the none. young right wing? Exactly. <laughs> he said none. Uh, very reliably pessimistic. Um, and I know I know you don't like to make predictions, but it seems to me if that England is the only country that has um, redone a revolution, mm. um, that if there's going to be any hope for a kind of a right wing revival in this country, they're going to have to do it again. That That's would be the right. cultural revolution of the last 30 to 40 years. D are you slightly more optimistic than Mr. Hitchens that this can be done? <sighs> Not in our current political dispensation. I think what is very striking is every other European country is actually swinging very firmly to the right. Mm -hmm. And I think they're doing it for two reasons. They're doing it, first of all, because you have a much easier definition of nationhood. Um, it's Disraeli who says the Conservative Party is a national party or nothing. But I'm afraid in Britain the great question is, what well, there isn't a British nation. That there was this desperate attempt. A British, a British nation. Sorry. There is yeah. not a British nation. Yes. There was this desperate attempt to trying to invent one by Gordon Brown. In fact, it was one of the. It, it, you had to be a historian to understand what was going on. But people like uh, uh, Linda Colley, David Calladine, Norman Davis were all really New Labour stormtroopers <laughs> trying to. <laughs> quite seriously, intellectual, intellectual stormtroopers storm trying yes. trying to invent. Or indeed, Sharma with his history of trying practice. to provide historical justifications for what they already wanted. For, yeah. for, for for New Labour yeah. and and for and for a notion of a British of a British identity. Mm. Remember, we define being British as being tolerant. Yes, uh, it's the only form of nationhood which is the mm. equivalent of a sewer. It's <laughs> it's a kind of uh, cloaca maxima in yeah, which yeah, everything yeah. everything, flo everything flows everything and there's flows no filter there's no <laughs> filter whatever. <laughs> you know, it sounds really pretty disgusting, and I think frankly it was. Uh, yes. uh, so, so 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 there's all of that. And remember this again. It's the paradox. One of the reasons we've been able to handle um, 
a, 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 a tumultuous multicultural society is precisely because we were always multinational. Mm. That you know, there was never a serious attempt with union with Scotland to amalgamate the two. Yes. Uh, uh, there's never really a serious attempt at creating a single British identity. Um, uh, so there's this extraordinary vibration in the meaning yes. of nation in Britain. But is that and then, just one second, sorry. and then the, I'm, ask, I'm trying to answer why, sure, why, why you know, if you're Hungarian, you know you're Hungarian. If yeah. you're French, you know you're French. If you're Italian, bizarrely, um, though uh, you get pretty confused between Milan and Sicily, uh, you sort of, sort of know that you're Italian and whatever. It's very difficult here. Um, uh, so that's one element uh, why I think we, why I worry about the revival of the right. And the second is, and here again, I, I've been trying to be very honest in this conversation and explain where I've changed my mind mm. and where I think I've got things wrong. Mm. I was one of those who led the resistance to the attempt at. Um, at, uh, what's the word I want, uh, at, at, in, uh, at changing the electoral system uh, back at the beginning. You know, the back the, the AV referendum, uh, yeah, 2011. Yeah, the, the, uh, 2011, yeah. uh, along with Matthew Elliott and whatever. Um, and uh, I was absolutely convinced by the arguments that, you know, two broad church parties are the way of producing political security and whatever. Uh, and what it seems to me now, the evidence is different. Mm. that both England and America are experiencing hideous forms of political stasis precisely because of first-past-the-post. Um, uh, and in America, of course, it's exacerbated by electoral gerrymandering and, and all the rest of it. Whereas continental Europe, bizarrely, is proportional representation has multiplied political parties, which of course gives a proper opening to, as it were, political variety. It was staggering listening to the, well, translations uh, of the debate between the Spanish Prime Minister Sanchez and the leader of, of the main party of the right. He was, do you know what, they had different ideas. Mm -hmm. They had completely different approaches to policy. Yes. Whereas you've been pointing out, it's usually very difficult to tell the difference between Sunak and Spanish. Yeah, they, 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 uh, Santiago Abascal and Pedro Sanchez don't both think that diversity builds Spain, for example. Uh, Whereas in Britain, you know, both, you've you got Sadiq Khan um, and Rishi Sunak signed up to this new founding myth, which I suspect actually has um, some pretty uh, malevolent motives as well actually because you've got to you've got to wonder what kind of person would you have to be to take issue with the fact that for you know for 90 99 percent of british history britain has been a majority white country what kind of person would you have to be to take issue with that if i had some because, because <laughs> we weren't diverse <laughs> exactly. what is this and again this this way in which all this nonsense has been bought into by the city how on earth is the country which which invents capitalism because that's mm. what we actually do, yes. with, without the benefit of anybody diverse around the table at yes, all. Yes. Uh, though if you actually look at the found, founding, the court, founding court of the Bank of England, what is very striking is a number of Huguenots. Yes, but they just, they just come in though, of course, uh, haven't they, in the late, yeah, yeah, in the late yeah, 17th yeah, century. And, and I'm afraid they are white. <laughs> <laughs> they're also Protestants. Yes. Uh, yes. But, but they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, yes, there is a form of diversity. There's very considerable cultural diversity. Again, what's very striking about London's ability, always one, ability to attract you know, Scots, Jews, Dutch, merchants, uh, enterprising uh, people from enterprise all over the Germans, continent, I mean, Germans. If, yeah. if you, you look at the great firms in the city, they're German. Mm. You know, yes. So many, so many of the great trade, so many of the great banking houses, mm. traders and whatever, they're all obviously German. Um, uh, uh, or or you, you look at the world of Edwardian London, um, where uh, 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 the, the, the king was was profoundly 
disapproved of by the high aristocracy. Um, uh, my friend Bertrand uh, Conrad Russell, Bertrand Russell's <laughs> last son, yes. um, uh, came up with uh, told me his his grandmother. You know, well, we can't go to court. This royal canaille, <laughs> because uh, what was the court? Well, it was. The brutal, brutal terms of mockery. It was the jurage. It was the beerage. Yes. Uh, uh, ennobled, ennobled brewers. Yes. Ennobled, uh, the great Jewish families. The um, um, the uh, what's it called? Uh, the landlords the great South Africans and whatever. And what a wonderful thing! I think. But of course, what they all did. None of them came in saying we want to preserve our differences. What they all came in was we want to participate in this extraordinary opportunity bluntly to make money yes. but also uh, to enjoy the most civilized and the most interesting and the most varied of capitals and yes. um, and and very splendid that is too um, but this is the problem the, the, the more you dilute what it means to be british the harder it is to argue for assimilation because then what are immigrants new arrivals assimilating into if you've diluted that original core that you have but this is this is the last question that which i'm uh, very keen to argue uh, to, keen to ask you um every revolutionary from Robespierre to, Ma to mao has acknowledged that in order to advance the total transformation of society to administer your favored ideological medicine it's a pretty good idea to alienate people from their own history. And we certainly live in a, in, in, in a culture in which people are severely alienated from their own history. And in many ways, what we would want, and I, what I imagine you would want young people to do, is to go and you know study history at university to, to feel... Not, like, well, not, that, that's not, the, that's not my question. taught by the kind of people who that's, teach that's, that's, my, that's my question. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in a bit of a difficult situation because on the one hand, you should be encouraging people to do that sort of thing. Yet I wonder if you're optimistic about the historical profession and whether you think young people, either whether they're on the right or in the centre, reasonably apolitical, but they care about historical accuracy, should they go to these institutions or should they learn history another way? Well, the point is, of course, that the monopoly of the universities is manifestly collapsing, as I think the universities are. Um, yeah. the, the, uh, I mean, what we're doing now. True. The, 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 the breakdown of media uniformity, uh, what is now available. I mean, the, you know, the extraordinary uh, kind of polluted ocean of the mm. internet in which are the wonderful things and terrible things and the problem is that we haven't really given uh, young people or indeed anybody the tools to discriminate mm. because the the, 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 the the tools of forensic reasoning of empirical reasoning and whatever are exactly the ones which are not being developed the the, the notion of debate and the the uh, and, and how you prove an argument and how how you properly prove an argument and so on <sighs> I suppose I have, unlike Hitchens, I still have, and maybe I, there are moments when I have absolute pessimism, mm. absolute pessimism. I mean, reading the paper is usually a very On the other hand, in a funny way, we talked, I think we should begin by talking about the transcendent. We began by talking about the false transcendence of this awful, parody religious revival this what I call religious heresies of the of the new left of the Marxist left and whatever I think we still have enough of this country of that sense of place of extraordinary buildings of an interwoven historical culture I hope for that I mean the the thing that I suppose has influenced me most uh, in thinking about all of this have been the work of people like T.S. Eliot, the Four Quartets, 
that extraordinary little kidding, the one which is history is now in England. And I think history can and the continued huge popular fascination with it, good, bad and indifferent. Um, I think history in England in particular is a form of transcendence. I think it is it is the it is our real it's it, it in the proper sense of of, 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 of transcendence. It's the it is both the grounding and the destination. Mm. Um, and I'm sorry to sound to end in equally muddied, equally uh, equally mysterious uh, uh, terms as I've been denouncing on behalf of our uh, of our opponents. But that standing in a quiet country church in the silence, and yet you hear bizarrely the noise of the past. That's what Eliot's invoking. Those feet which have trodden there, those deeds which have been done there. And here, in the heart of this city, in the heart of Westminster, there's another kind of transcendence. You go into the Abbey, despite what the clergy of the Abbey have sort of done. You go into St Paul's, where the attack um, has been much more radical, um, and you still feel it. And that, as much as words, as much as anything we can do, is where there might be hope. There may yet be hope for a British restoration. Well, Dr. David Starkey, it's been a privilege to sit down with you and, and to discuss all these matters. Uh, Evan, thanks as ever. Uh, you've been watching Deprogrammed. Make sure to like, subscribe, leave a comment, and we shall see you on the next one. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, May I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as three pounds per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.